started in the book of Ephesians. We're preaching through this great book that the Apostle Paul wrote under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit. And this is our fourth sermon and we've just made it to the seventh verse. But as I said, when we started in this book, this, this book is so rich in theology. It's so rich in Christian orthodoxy and orthopraxy, how we live out those truths, which is in the second half of this book, that we can't just rush through it. We want to see all that the Lord has to say to us uh, as we uh, minister the word of the Lord. So again, I'm going to start back at the first verse to get the full context. And then we'll focus our attention this morning on the seventh verse. And this is from the ESV uh, translation. It says, Paul, an apostle of Christ by the will of God, to the saints who are in Ephesus and are faithful in Christ Jesus, grace to you and peace from God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, who has blessed us with every spiritual blessing in the heavenly places, even as he has chosen us in him before the foundation of the world, that we should be holy and blameless before him. In love, he predestined us for adoption as sons through Jesus Christ, according to the purpose of his will, to the praise of his glorious grace, with which he has blessed us or accepted us in the beloved. In him, we have redemption through his blood, the forgiveness of our sins, according to the riches of his grace. Some translations say the forgiveness of our trespasses. So this morning, we're looking at being freed by redemption. There used to be a time not too long ago uh, that terrorism was the biggest threat across our nation. You all probably remember that, those of us who are old enough. You know, especially after the September 11th attacks, September 11th of 2001, you know, the uh, terrorism had entered into the U.S. conversation. First, it was just reserved for primarily countries in the Middle East. But when our country nation was attacked on September 11th, that, that changed the conversation. But even before that, in the 70s and, and 80s, uh, the threat of being taken hostage by uh, terrorists was a real thing. I remember growing up as a kid, the, um, I think it was in 1979, the uh, Iranian militants had stormed the U.S. Embassy in Tehran, Iran, which is the uh, capital of that, that nation. And they took, uh, I think, 56, I, think I was reading over it uh, yesterday and day before, I think about 56 uh, people hostage uh, in that embassy. And they were in captivity for 444 days. That's over a year. That those, those 56 people, I think it started off with about 70, and they released some, and then it ended up with 56 who were in captivity for 444 days. That's a long time. That's over a year of not knowing what's going to happen to you, your family members, uh, the nation, as far as whether we were going to go to war with Iran or not. Now, we may say, they know what it means to be hostages, but we don't. But 
we do understand what it's like to be a hostage because we identify with the hostages in their joy of release and their appreciation of freedom. We know that spiritually. They knew it in the flesh. But we know spiritually what it means to be hostages. And God says that we all enter this life as hostages. All of us enter this world under the dominion and the bondage of sin. All of us do. We enter this world under the rule of Satan. Paul says this in Ephesians 2, which we'll get to in a few weeks. He says in Ephesians 2 that we were once children of wrath. That we were once children of wrath. That we were under the sway of the world. Remember, we are conceived in sin. We're not just born in sin when we come out of our mother's womb. We're, we're already conceived. David said in Psalm 51, in sin did my mother conceive me. So from the moment of fertilization, we're in sin. But we experience the full extent of that sinfulness when we are born you know we talk about babies being as Vody Balcom said vipers in a diaper you know if you if you don't know the doctrine you know we, we preached on total depravity back in 2021 uh, if you don't believe in total depravity you never had kids <laughs> okay when they were babies but Paul says in Ephesians 2 that we were dead in the trespasses and sins in which we watched while following the course of this world following the prince of the power of the air who is Satan the spirit that is now at work in the sons of disobedience. So God says that we all enter this world, this life as hostages. We were all under the dominion of sin, the dominion of Satan that is now over this world. And we can't understand and appreciate our redemption until we understand the bondage that we were in. You, you can never know what it is to be free until you realize that at first you were in bondage. Illustration here. So just imagine the Secretary of State sending over, um, you know, to the hostage situation that someone is in, containers full of ransom money. The, the, the people holding someone ransom says, you know, I need $2 million in cash. And so the Secretary of State sends his envoy over to wherever someone is being kidnapped from the United States with suitcases full of money. And you have a military plane flying everything over and all this pomp and circumstance. And the military plane is sitting on the runway, ready to go deliver this money. And those hostages say, no, go home. We're fine. <laughs> and they willingly stay in captivity. This is how it is with those who have not been redeemed from their sins. They're in captivity. And the person. Who made the way to, for them to be free from their captivity. Has already come. Salvation has come through Jesus Christ. Just as the Lord said in Matthew 1 and 21. You shall call his name Jesus. For he shall deliver his people from their sins. Jesus came to deliver from sin. But those who are in bondage. They say, no, I'm good. I'm fine. No, you're not. But Satan is a lot craftier than any terrorist or any kidnapper. 
Because Satan, one, has the advantage of willing captives. Those who are in sin want to be in sin. Why? Because we're sinners by nature. We're at home in the realm of Satan. Now, our default is sin. Our, our default nature is sin. Even though we we're created by a perfect God to mirror and to image him, you know, being made in his image. God had rights of prior ownership and allegiance. He created Adam and Eve in his image. Only to watch them become entrapped in sin and cascade all of creation into sin. All that time, God was still working out his plan of redemption. From Genesis 3 until now, God, all of scripture, we talk about that all of scripture is a narrative of God's redemption. God's redeeming his people. God redeeming a people to himself. But Satan has the advantage of having willing captives. A.W. Tozer said this, and it is so true and poignant. He says, those who God condemns to hell want to go. Because they're choosing that life of sin, they're violating their own conscience. And the conscience that we all have is given to us by God. Why? Because we're made in his image. Remember, Westminster Confession. What is the chief purpose of man? The chief end of man is to glorify God and to enjoy him forever. And that is why God made us. Every person knows that God exists. Roman, Romans 1 says that. Every person knows right from wrong. But what do they do? Paul says, they suppress the truth of God in unrighteousness. Why? Because they're willing participants in their bondage. They want to be in bondage. They choose that life of bondage. Why? Because they're depraved. They're willing captives. Satan also is supported by the power of peer pressure and the desire to conform to this age. We talk about all the time about how social media well, even before social media, there was always peer pressure. There's always the pressure to conform to the world. There's always pressure to capitulate, to give in to. There's always pressure to compromise. And I always remember this principle. We talked about it when we were doing our uh, biblical worldview uh, Bible study. When you compromise on one point of truth, it's like unraveling a yarn. Once you take that tip off, that yarn just starts what? Slowly just unraveling. It's like the old illustration of the, the toothpaste is out of the tube. You ever try to squeeze toothpaste out and uh, on the counter and suck it back in? It's not going to work. The toothpaste is already out the tube. Once you compromise, once you capitulate, once you acquiesce or give in to the culture or that pressure to conform and that pressure to modify God and give him a makeover, then you've lost it. So Satan has the power, the advantage of people's desire to conform to the age. There are millions of people, billions of people in this spiritual realm that are held captive by Satan. They're tempted by the broad way. And Jesus said in, uh, was it Matthew 7 and 13, Broad 
is the way and wide is the gate that leads to destruction. And how many people find it? Many. Why? Because those many are attracted to the world. They are conformed to this age. And they think that they can live however they want to live. And then when they decease, their family members can pray and mourn them into heaven at the funeral. Or eulogize them into heaven. And what is the Lord going to say? Like John MacArthur said, the three most damning words any person can hear is depart from me. I never knew you. Why? Because they were conformed to this age. The other advantage that Satan has is he makes captivity attractive. He makes slavery to sin seem fun. They're not sitting around blindfolded in dungeons, <laughs> so to speak. They're not even fully aware that the wrath of God is hanging over their heads and that the lake of sulfur awaits them. People who are living in sin and debauchery, they're not thinking about that. They're not thinking about the fact that they are under the wrath of God. That they're dangling their souls over the lake of sulfur. They're not thinking about that. And they want you to think they're not thinking about it. So what do they do? They medicate themselves. They destroy their bodies. They go for the acclaim and praise of man on social media. All to assuage their guilty conscience. They may not know that the wrath of God hangs over him but their conscience still convicts them of what they're doing they know that what they're doing is wrong but they suppress that conscience Satan makes captivity seem attractive he makes sin seem attractive that's why we sin <laughs> because it seems attractive all of us are sinners all of us are guilty of that sin seems very attractive doesn't it it seems fun. You know, my wife and I, we, we joke, uh, we watch uh, Lifetime Movie Network. That's our guilty pleasure. And, uh, you know, they make adultery seem so fun. And, you know, you're just having this fling and you're just so happy and it's just so blissful. Isn't that how the world puts adultery? Like it's fun. It's, you know, uh, the, the, the website Ashley Madison, life is short, have an affair. You know, it's, it's, it, it makes sin seem fun and attractive. Getting high makes it seem fun and attractive. You escape this world and escape your troubles. Go take this fentanyl and have an overdose. Go smoke this weed and get high. Go drink this alcohol and and get drunk into a stupor, get a buzz, or get right, as they used to say. Why? Because it's fun. Satan always makes captivity to see and seem fun, doesn't he? The beauty is that from Satan's perspective, his hostages don't think they're in bondage. 
people who are in bondage to sin don't know that they're in bondage to sin. They're slaves to their own sinful desires and they don't even know it. They make a big deal about how free and independent they are, don't they? My body, my choice. To women who murder their children in the womb. They think that they're free to make what? Their reproductive choice, reproductive justice. That they're free to kill their own children. Why? Because it's legal. But it's still a sin against God. You hear people say that they're free spirited. They're free thinkers. <laughs> they're living their truth. They're, they're manifesting. They're energy creators. You know, positive and negative energy and sending out good vibes. They're their control of their own destiny. Or like the famous Frank Sinatra song, I did it my way. The truth is, friends, is that all people are in bondage. All people are slavery to someone. Either you are a slave to Christ or you're enslaved to the bondage that you are in. You are a slave of Satan. And you can't separate salvation in the wrong thing or in Christ from lordship. Whoever you look to as your savior is your Lord. And for a lot of people, sin is their savior. Bondage is their savior. And their Lord is Satan. So the key question is, who are you going to have for your master? Is it the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ? Or is it the God of this age, the God of this world, Satan? So hostages in the spiritual realm don't have free wills in the sense that they would never choose to get on that plane to freedom apart from God's election and predestinated them to adoption as sons. And that's what we see in this passage. Even as he chose us in him before the foundation of the world. That we should be holy and blameless before him in love. In love he predestined us for adoption as sons. A person who's in bondage didn't predestine themselves. They didn't adopt themselves into God's family. It was God who did the adopting. It was God who did the choosing. Those who are in bondage to sin can not free themselves from that bondage. And we're going to see if so, we will need the cross. If that's the case, amen. That's my introduction. <laughs> but the rest of it is not going to be too long. That's my introduction. A definition of redemption. I have a few working theological definitions here. The International Bible Encyclopedia says, Redemption means to bring back into rightful ownership or the restoration to one who has possessed a more fundamental right or interest. So it means to bring into rightful relationship by the paying of a price or ransom. It also means buying back a slave or a captive or making him free by payment of a ransom. Redemption also means deliverance from bondage as a result of the payment of a ransom. 
It says the Greek word is an intensified form that emphasizes the separation from the former state, from being uh, in bondage. To never again be brought into bondage. So redemption also implies, if you notice in those definitions, it implies a price being paid for the freedom that is purchased. So redemption involves a price. And it involves a purchase. It involves something that is being purchased. And it comes from the ancient Greek word lutruo, which means to liberate on the receipt of a ransom. I don't know if y'all, uh, I'm a, you know, I used to be a big Mel Gibson fan. He had this movie called Ransom where his son was kidnapped and Mel Gibson was, um, he was an a airline executive, an executive of an airline company and his son was, uh, was kidnapped and he had to come up with, I think, $5 million to, to free his son. So with redemption, a price has to be paid to be redeemed or to be purchased. Now Warren Worsby said here that uh, there were 60 million slaves in the Roman Empire during Paul's day. That's a lot. (laughs) That's a lot. And often they were brought and sold, they were bought and sold rather like pieces of furniture. He says, but a man could purchase a slave and set him free. And this is what Christ did for us. Christ purchased us and set us free. As I said a few minutes ago, we can't redeem ourselves. That is what's wrong in the world now. People are trying to redeem themselves from the bondage of the sin that they're in, and they do it by creating or doing more sin. So what is the price? In this passage, the price is the blood of Christ. Showing that the blessing from the Father and the Son comes not only from a divine decree, but it comes according to his righteousness and holiness. That's what we see in this passage. God cannot bless in opposition to his righteousness. So this redemption means that we're free from the law. We we talked about that when we went through Galatians uh, earlier, uh, late last year and earlier this year. It doesn't come from the law. It doesn't come from doing works. But God freed us from the law having to add to our salvation or add to our works trying to obey the law because we can't do that. And also when we're redeemed, we're redeemed from the slavery to sin. Paul talks about this in Romans 6. This is what Paul says in Romans 6. I'm going to just read a few of these uh, verses here. Six and fifteen. What then shall we sin, because we are not under the law but under grace? Certainly not. Do you not know that to whom you present yourselves slaves to obey, you are that one slaves whom you obey, whether of sin leading to death or of obedience leading to righteousness? But God be thanked that though you were, remember Paul is talking to Christians here. He's talking to believers. Though you were saint. Though you were faithful, slaves of sin, yet you obey from the heart that form of doctrine 
to which you were delivered. And having been freed from sin, you become slaves of righteousness. So what Paul is doing in that passage is distinguishing that there are two types of people. There are two kinds of people in this world. Those who are slaves to sin and those who are slaves to what? Righteousness. Those who are slaves to sin are children of Satan. They belong to Satan. But those who are slaves to righteousness, they are there because they are adopted as sons of God through Jesus Christ. Those are all two categories. There's no gray area. There's no straddling of the fence, as my old folks used to say. So Paul is telling us here that this redemption frees us from slavery to sin. And it frees us from the power of Satan and the world. When we're free from sin, it doesn't mean that we're never going to sin again. It means that we're not under the power and the domination of sin. That sin doesn't dominate us. That sin doesn't have us under its thumb. That sin is not our master. Because remember, sin is a cruel master. Sin does not relent. Sin seeks to destroy you. The sin that lies within you has one goal, and that is to destroy you and send your soul to hell. That's the only goal of Satan. It's to send you to hell to be eternally separated from God forever. But when you're redeemed, you're not under the slavery of that sin. You're not in bondage to that sin. Remember, Christians struggle against sin, but we don't live in sin. Sin is not our default. It is, it, it is not our natural proclivity. For the Christian, our natural proclivity is to fight sin on our knees. As Paul said, put sin to death. Mortify the deeds of the flesh, as we read in Colossians 3. To actively put sin to death. To hate our sin. To not like it. To not revel in it, to not glory in it, to not brag about it, but to put it to death. Lord, help me to stop this besetting sin. Lord, deliver me from this besetting sin. Every time you commit that besetting sin, you're like, oh, why did I do that? Why? Because you hate it. You don't want that sin. You don't want to sin. That's what it means to be freed from the bondage of sin. You don't want it. You hate it. You loathe it. You despise it. And you take it to the Lord and say, Lord, help me. But those who are under the bondage of sin, they love it. They get a high from it. They get thrills from it. They get uh, what they think is joy from it. Temporary fleeting moments of happiness from it. But they also get misery from it. Because sin brings misery you see these people out here these famous people they oh they look you know all of us all of us post our best moments on social media don't we amen amen like voter back will say if you can't say amen say ouch <laughs> social media is the spot where People post all their best moments. I guess I don't have any best moments because I rarely post on Facebook. <laughs> I'm kidding. But that's, that's what it's for, right? Everyone posts their best moments. Instagram, 
Everybody posts their best picture and make sure it's filtered. And I guess they filter on Facebook too. Everybody filters their pictures and all those things because we want to present what? Our best. And then when people see you in real life, they're like, that's true. Or something happens in the news, something bad that you did. You're like, man, I thought they were, you know, they like they had, had, had it together. We see that, don't we? Like with famous couples who get divorced, like, oh, they seem like they're so happy together. I mean, who doesn't, right? Then they get divorced. Oh, they like they were so, you know, you saw these PDA pictures and all at the beach vacation. You know, everything's all having fun. And then next thing you know, they're like the Hatfield and McCoys. Why? Because when you're in bondage to sin, you have to show that you're not in bondage to sin. You have to show that you have it all together when deep down inside, I always say this, in the middle of the night when you can't sleep, those worries set in. Your conscience convicts you. The third person of the Trinity, the Holy Spirit of God, is convicting you of your sins. He's calling unbelievers to himself. He's calling them to repent. He's calling them to turn from their ways and to follow Christ. But what do they do? They ignore it. They ignore their conscience. And as they do that, they harden their hearts more and more toward the gospel, toward the truth of their salvation, toward the solution for their bondage. They harden their hearts to the only one who can free them from that bondage. Friends, Christ is the only way to be free from the bondage of sin. He is the only way. Now, redemption in Jewish, uh, I won't say tradition, but redemption goes back to the, uh, the year of Jubilee in Leviticus, the 25th chapter. Uh, the same Greek word in the Septuagint, which is the Greek translation of the Old Testament, the same word for redemption uh, is connected to the year of Jubilee and is found in Leviticus, I think, 25 and 10. Here I have in my notes, and this is what that scripture uh, says. It says here, <coughs> and you shall s consecrate the 50th year and proclaim liberty throughout all the land to all its inhabitants. It shall be a jubilee for you. Each of you shall return to his possession and each of you shall return to his family. Proclaim liberty is redemption. The same Greek word that we have for redemption in the New Testament. Because this land that they were in belonged to the Lord and the Israelites only possessed the right to use the fruit of the land. That land didn't belong to them. It belonged to God. That's why God said, I'm giving you the land. But it's his land that he was given to them. So all the way back in the Old Testament, we see the theme of redemption. In fact, the story of Israel as a nation is one of redemption, because if you remember, after Joseph died, the scripture says at the end of Genesis, the beginning of Exodus, that there rose a Pharaoh who did not know Joseph or who did not know the fathers of Israel. 
And that Israel was in bondage for how long? 400 years. And then, of course, God calls Moses. And God tells them that he hears the cries of his people. And what did God do? He sent Moses to Pharaoh 10 different times. And then Pharaoh finally let the people go. And they escaped from what? Slavery. From bondage. They experienced redemption. That redemption in the Old Testament points to our redemption in Christ. Remember, the Old Testament always points to Christ. Israel being redeemed from bondage in Israel, which represented sin and the nature of sin and what sin does to us. They're escaping. They're being delivered from Egypt into the promised land is a picture of our being redeemed from sin. And that's what we see in the Jewish background in the Old Testament. And also, as you were reading through the book of Ruth that we just finished, the story of uh, Ruth and Boaz, Boaz was Ruth's redeemer. He was the kinsman redeemer, which pointed to Christ as our kinsman, as our brother, and also our redeemer. That's what the story of Ruth and Boaz is about. Boaz was the kinsman redeemer. Boaz was a type of Christ. And if you read the end of Ruth, you see the genealogy of who? King David. And who does King David point to? Christ as king. So you see, even in that story, you see redemption being redeemed from sin. Now, in this context right here, in this passage, this redemption that Paul is speaking of speaks of a present reality. So we're going to look at two principles here in short. The first one is that redemption is accomplished through his blood. The blood is the means of redemption and the ransom price. If you look at the passage here in verse 7, it says, In him we have. Have is a very important word. It is a present tense verb. So the tense of the verb have speaks of the present reality of the possession of redemption. Redemption is ours, believers, as a present possession. It is not something we're going to have in the near future or in the sweet by and by. We right now have redemption. We are redeemed. We have been redeemed from sin now the king james says in whom we have redemption in whom refers back to the beloved accepted in the beloved in whom we have redemption what does this mean we are accepted in the beloved in christ and redemption is the primary work of christ the beloved christ is the one in whom we have redemption that's why we look to Christ. That's why we sing to Christ. That's why we worship Christ. That's why salvation is in Christ alone. So it says in him we have redemption through. Through means by means of or by way of. This redemption is through what? His blood. Whose blood? Christ's 
blood. You know, don't we sing that song, Power in the Blood, here? That's one of our favorite songs. We sung it just a couple of uh, Sundays ago. Power, power, wonder work of power in the blood of the Lamb. And we as Christians don't talk about the blood enough. I guess because, you know, like I say, you can fall into one ditch or the other ditch. It's either underemphasis or overemphasis on the blood. But the blood of Christ is important because that is the means of our redemption. His blood. And blood in scripture is a metaphor for death. Something had to die in order for blood to be shed. God said in Genesis 9 and 4, but you should not eat flesh with its life, that is its blood. And we just read in, uh, what is it, Deuteronomy about the eating of meats, that they had to eat the meat, but they couldn't eat the blood. That means I can have an extra rare steak, right? <laughs> I like my medium. I like a little pink. But no, we're not under the, we're not under the law, so we're not going to make a law where there is no law. Uh, but anyway, this blood refers to Jesus's vicarious substitutionary sacrificial death. I'm going to explain those words. What does vicarious mean? You're you're living through someone else. Christ suffering on the cross was vicarious. Why? Because he suffered for us. He suffered on our behalf. He took our place on the cross as our substitute. We as a church and all of our sister churches, we believe in the doctrine of penal substitution. And what that means is we believe that Christ died in our place and he took God's punishment for sin on himself. You have churches that don't even believe that. And they don't believe in penal substitutionary atonement. It's a big word, but it simply means Christ died in our place for our sins. He was punished for our sins. He was condemned for our sins. He bore the curse. Curse is every man who dies on a tree. Christ bore the curse of sin for us. That's penal. Penal means punishment, like penal system. You know what substitute means to take the place of. Okay, and atonement is the is, is the act of paying that penalty. So the blood refers to Christ's substitutionary sacrificial death. He died in our place. Isaiah 53 talks about that. He was wounded for our transgressions, and he was what bruised for our iniquities. The chastisement that brought us peace was upon him. That's him being our substitute. That's him dying in our place for our sins. And Paul was showing that Christ was truly human by referring to blood. He was showing the Greek philosophers of his day. He was showing the the Greek, the pagans, the false teachers, that Christ was truly man because he shed his blood. J. Vernon McGee, the great 20th century preacher, said this. I love this. I was reading this. I said, man, I was going to actually uh, send this out as a text message to you all last night, but I said I would just wait for uh, it, me to say it in the sermon. 
J. Vernon McGee said, the blood of Christ is more valuable than silver and gold. He says, for one thing, there's not much of it. A limited supply increases the value of a substance, but that really is not the reason for its value. He said, one drop of the blood of the Holy Son of God can save every sinner on this side of earth if that sinner would put his trust in the Savior. All it took was one drop of Christ's blood to save people from their sins. A human only has so much blood in their body. Friends, all it took was one drop of blood for all of humanity, for every sinner to trust in Christ for salvation. That's how precious this blood is. What, what's the song we sing? What can wash away our sins? Nothing but the blood of Jesus. What can make me whole again? Nothing but the, nothing but the blood of Jesus. How precious is that flow that makes me white as snow? No other what? Name I know? Nothing but the blood of Jesus. There's a fountain filled with blood drawn from Emmanuel's vein. And sinners plunge beneath that flood, wash all my sins away. That great hymn that we sing. It is the blood that does that. It is the blood that provides the redemption for us. If Christ had not went to that cross, friends, guess what? We would still be in our sins. We would still be under bondage to sin. We would have no hope in this world at all. There's no deliverance without the shedding of blood. None. Period. The writers in Hebrew, Hebrews the ninth chapter said this, Hebrews 9 and 22. The writer said, and according to the law, almost all things are purified with blood. And without shedding of blood, there is no remission. That's why we had the sacrificial system in the Old Testament. There's no forgiveness without the shedding of blood. There is none. You contrast that with the Old Testament sacrificial system. You can only cover the, the sins for a year. And that was on the Day of Atonement. Every year on the Day of Atonement, the high priest had to find that lamb without blemish to sacrifice. But those sacrifices were only types and shadows of the ultimate sacrifice for all time and that was the sacrifice of Jesus Christ when Christ went to the cross the sacrificial system was done away with do you know how bloody the sacrificial system was we were studying through the through the book of Leviticus uh, last year it was a bloody messy system it was blood sacrifices are not pleasant. They're messy and they're smelly, but they're that way to remind us of our sins because guess what? Our sins are messy. Our sins are smelling. Our sins stink in the nostrils of a holy God. Sin stinks so much, people, that God forsook his own son on the cross. So much that he cried out, My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? 
That's how terrible sin is. That's how messy sin is. That's how much sin stinks. That the Son of God called out to the Father. Why did he forsake him? Because he was taking on our sins. The earth had gone dark as Christ paid that price for our sins and shed his blood. It was all by his blood. Notice it's not redemption through his power, but it's through his blood. It's not redemption through his love but through his blood because his blood is an expression of that love. His blood is an expression of the power. This was Charles Spurgeon said. He says, observe, it is not redemption through his power. It is through his blood. It is not through redemption. It is not redemption through his love. It is through his blood that we are redeemed. That we are set free. Now what we must not do as people have done, that's why I say you go, you fall to one ditch or the other ditch. We should not take a superstitious or mystical view of the blood. It was not the physical blood that saved anyone, but his real and total payment for the sins of man in the whole person on the cross. So it wasn't just the blood alone to the point where people began to worship literally the blood. Yeah, people do that because they go too far into the wrong ditch. It was the full person of Christ on the cross. But it was through the shedding of his blood that our sins were forgiven. And this is what the New Testament means when it talks about the blood. Now, while God wants us to remember our sins, to appreciate the great power that he paid, he also wants us to forget our sins. And I'll explain what I mean by that. Because he provided complete forgiveness. So our next principle is the main result of redemption is the forgiveness of our trespasses. So it says here, the second part of verse 7. In him we have redemption through his blood, the forgiveness of our sins. Sin is almost like an obligation. It's like a bad debt that we can't get rid of no matter what we do. Sin is that reminder that we're in debt to God. Think about that. Sin is a reminder that we're in debt to God. That we have a debt that we cannot pay. That's what sin is. It's a debt that we cannot pay. God's justice and holiness was satisfied on the cross. Why? Because we couldn't pay that debt. We can't possibly pay the debt of our sin. Because that's what a lot of people are spending their life trying to do. They're trying to pay off God. <laughs> They're trying to bribe God by what? Good works. By being a good person. We probably know people like that just in our immediate life that are working their hardest to try to, quote, get right with God and get on God's, quote, good side as if God has two sides. Friends, God doesn't have parts. He is altogether God. We talked about that. We talked about the aseity of God, that, that God is all one. He doesn't, he doesn't have parts. 
He didn't have a good part and a, and a bad part and a sweet part and a, and a mean part. No, God is altogether holy. God is altogether righteous. He's not compartmentalized like we are. So, God's justice and holiness and righteousness were satisfied on the cross. Why? Because something had to be paid. Something had to be done about our sins. So what did Christ do? He satisfied the righteousness, the righteous wrath of God. That's what propitiation is. He became the atoning sacrifice. He satisfied God's wrath, his just and righteous wrath against sin. Now, he talks about forgiveness here. This forgiveness reminds us of the Day of Atonement. And this is what took place. I'm going to read this for you. I referenced it earlier. The Day of Atonement was the day that the high priest sent the scapegoat into the wilderness. This is in Leviticus, the 16th chapter. The first thing the priest would do was kill one of uh, two goats were brought to the priest. Okay. So he would kill one of the goats and sprinkle his blood before God on the mercy seat. The mercy seat was sitting on top of the Ark of the Covenant. And that symbolized the fact that sin cost a life. That's what that meant. You know, when Paul says the wages of sin is death, that's what that points back to. Something had to die in order for sin to be what? Paid for or atoned for. Something had to die. What happened when Adam and Eve sinned? Death came into the world. After Adam and Eve sinned, man began to die. Now, he had some who lived 936 years like Methuselah, but he still died. <laughs> yeah, he lived almost a thousand years, almost a millennium, but he still what? Died. The patriarchs lived until like 120. Moses was 120 when he died, but he still what? died because the wages of sin was what death so that uh, goat being sacrificed showing that sin cost life and so what he did was he confessed Israel's sins over the live goat the second goat and then the goat had to be taken out into the wilderness to be lost and this was symbolically carrying away Israel's sins it was a it was a symbol so the first goat was killed. That's where we get the word scapegoat from. Y'all hear the person a person is a scapegoat? That's what that's where the term comes from. The scapegoat was the, the goat who carried symbolically the sins of Israel out into the wilderness. You know, scapegoat is a person that does what? Takes the blame, right? Or the person who the blame is put on. That comes from the Bible. The world can't escape scripture. <laughs> but that's what scapegoat comes from. The person who takes the blame. So that goat took the sins of Israel on him symbolically and it was sent out into the wilderness to be lost symbolizing carrying Israel's sins away now the great thing about that is that Christ died to carry away our sins so that they may never be seen again so that's what I meant by forgetting sins listen to this Scripture, we read this before in our um, assurance of forgiveness. 
Colossians, I'm sorry. I still got Colossians in my mind. Psalm 103 and 12. Man, this is so good. As far as the east is from the west, so far has he removed our transgressions from us. What do you think the, what do you think the psalmist was referring to? The scapegoat. God has removed our sins from us. So believer, guess what? You've been redeemed. Your sins have been forgiven. Do you have to go around having a pity party? Beating yourself upside the head about sins that have already been forgiven? But we do that, don't we? We go around condemning ourselves for sins that have already been forgiven, that have already been paid for. When Christ died to carry those sins away so that we won't have to remember them. Why should we remember them when the Bible tells us in Romans 8 and 1 that there is therefore now no condemnation to those who are in Christ Jesus? Our sins don't condemn us, believer. If you're condemning yourself because of your sin, now lamenting and struggling against them is different than condemning yourself. You condemn yourself as if you're a sinner when you're not because you have been justified. You have been declared righteous by the blood of Jesus Christ and being clothed with the righteousness of Christ. You are forgiven. You are justified. You're declared not guilty. Your sin record has been wiped clean. So why are you walking around having a pity party about sins that have already been forgiven? The Bible tells us that no written accusation can stand against us because we have been forgiven. Satan is the one who accuses the brethren. Revelation, I think it's Revelation 10 or 12 that says that. Satan accuses us. But what does Christ do in his priestly role? He mediates for us. He pleads our righteousness before the Father. Christ doesn't condemn us before God. No, he is our mediator. He goes before the Father on our behalf as our mediator. He mediates our righteousness before the Father. When God sees us, he sees the righteousness of Christ on us. He does not see our sin. Why? Because we have been redeemed. We have been purchased by the blood of Christ. And our sins have been forgiven. And that is right now. That is not something that's going to happen in the sweet by and by. Thank God for redemption. Thank God that he has redeemed us. Thank God that he has freed us by redemption. So we don't have to go around. And I'm going to say this. This is not in my notes, but this just came into my mind. You can't forgive yourself. You can't forgive yourself. I, I just... I just need to forgive myself. I can't forgive others until I forgive myself. What do I always say? Book, chapter, verse, and context, please. I, I just, I just can't. I, I know God has forgiven me, but I, I just can't forgive myself. You're saying that you, <laughs> your sin is more powerful than the blood of Christ. That's what you're saying. You're saying that your sin is greater than God's grace to cover it. 
it sounds good, but it's, it, that's so sinful to say that you, you can't forgive yourself. You don't sin against yourself. You sin against God. You need the forgiveness of God. You yourself are not God. If you're saying you can't forgive yourself, you're saying that you're God. And from what I read in my Bible, God is a God who does what? Forgives. How can you say you don't forgive yourself when the Holy God forgives you of your sins? By the blood of Jesus. But you're so holy and righteous that you say, oh, I just can't forgive myself. That's almost heresy to say that. Because you're saying that you're more of a God than God is. No. You're forgiven by Christ. It is his blood, not yours, that provides forgiveness. If you find yourself saying that, slap yourself in the mouth. <laughs> if you hear somebody else saying it, don't slap them in the mouth, but, you know. Amen. And this forgiveness, lastly here, is according to the riches of his grace. As we get ready to land this plane here. It is according to the riches of whose grace? His grace. The grace of Christ. This redemption, this forgiveness is according to his grace. And guess what? God's grace is boundless. Just like all his other attributes, mercy, kindness, love. God is not a stingy, begrudging God. He's a loving, heavenly father who wants to shower us with spiritual blessings in the heavenly places in Christ as we read. We don't have to worry that our sins will outstrip God's gracious forgiveness, people. Christian, your sins will never outstrip God's grace and his gracious forgiveness. What's the second hymn we saw today? Grace greater than our sin because it is. It is a marvelous and infinite grace, and we can't outsend it at all. In conclusion, I want to read this to you. I wrote, We now have the liberty to serve Christ. The higher our conception of God's holiness, and the deeper our sense of personal sinfulness, the greater our appreciation of the riches of His grace that were necessary to provide our redemption. Our freedom has been purchased by the blood of Christ. Our substitute on the cross. And that sacrifice brought about the forgiveness of our sins. Christ died in our place bearing the payment for our sins himself. And in doing that he provided the way for redemption for those who don't believe those who are in bondage to sin that we know, our loved ones, our friends, our co-workers, people out in the world, they are in bondage. They're crying out. And guess what they need? They need to be redeemed from that bondage. And who is the source of that redemption? Christ. Come to Christ, unbeliever. Christ is the only hope for this world. He will always be the only hope for this world. 
Here's the only hope for me. When I was lost in sin and couldn't find my way. And for you too, believer, if you're honest with yourself, when you were lost, who provided that way for you? Jesus. He saved you. He redeemed you. I was in bondage to some sins before Christ saved me. I was in bondage to alcohol. I was in bondage to uh, other uh, habits. I was very prideful, self-centered. But Christ saved me. He redeemed me from that bondage. And he can do the same for you who don't believe. Amen. Last few questions here. Things to think about in the application. These are just how much questions. Like how much do we appreciate our redemption? How much do we think about our redemption? How much do we praise God for our redemption? Those are things that we should thank the Lord for. And think about not necessarily every day, all day. I'm not going to make a law where there is no law. But those are things that should be in our thinking from time to time. Just thanking the Lord for our redemption, for redeeming us. How often do we do that? And also have we submitted to the Lordship of Christ? And now we enjoying the freedom from the bondage of our sins. Is Christ our Lord? And are we enjoying this redemption that we have in Christ? Our souls have been redeemed. Are we enjoying that freedom? Or are we living as if we're still in bondage to our sins? And are we looking to Christ as Lord? Let us pray and then we'll observe the Lord's table. Father, thank you for redemption. Thank you for redeeming us. Lord, thank you for providing the way of redemption. Redemption is only found in Jesus Christ through his shed blood. We thank you, Lord, that in him we have redemption through his blood, the forgiveness of our trespasses according to the riches of his grace. And Lord, I pray for unbelievers who are listening to this or will listen to it. Lord, that by the Spirit that you convict them of their sins, convince them of a need, of the need for the only Savior, Jesus Christ. That Christ is the only way that they can be redeemed from that bondage of sin that they are under, that they just can't shake, that they just can't get out from under. And Lord, encourage the saints, encourage the faithful, encourage the elect, encourage those who have been predestined to adoption as sons, to live in the freedom that we have, to stand fast in the liberty, as Paul says, where Christ has set us free. To stand fast in the fact that our sins have been forgiven and that we're not under bondage to sins. Redeem, redeem, Lord, our souls have been redeemed. Thank you, Father, for your word. May you use it to encourage the faithful and to bring sinners to a saving faith in you. In Christ's name I pray, amen.